You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. HuntStand is the most popular and functional mobile hunting app on the market. With a variety of base maps to choose from, satellite imagery that is updated every month, the ability to check the weather, no property information, and even catalog your trail cam picks, HuntStand even gives you the ability to import pins and location markers from other mobile apps. Visit HuntStand.com or download wherever you download your apps. Enter discount code SN20 at checkout for 20% off. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin-cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. Welcome to Maximize Your Hunt, the podcast dedicated to those who want the most out of their hunting property. This podcast explores land management, habitat improvement, and hunting strategies that will help you maximize your time in the field. Follow along as industry professionals that live and breathe white-tailed deer share their secrets to success. And now, the founder of Whitetail Landscapes, your host, John Teeter. Hi, I'm John Teeter, Whitetail Landscapes. This is Maximize Your Hunt. Welcome back, everybody. Let's see, uh, on the docket this week, I I just got back from a client visit yesterday. I am in the office. I am working on drawing up a bunch of consultant plans, so... It's fun for me. I get to go back in the field in a day or two. Tonight, with my headlamp, I'm going to spray a couple of my fields, my switchgrass fields on my own property. So I'm trying to work when I have the chance and work on my own property. I actually had, fortunate for me, a client that I, I consulted with before, and I do continue, continue consulting with him, come and actually cut timber with me. So I actually had a hand the other day, which is really nice. Uh, that doesn't normally happen. I usually like to work kind of by myself and uh, think through my property layout and design, but it was kind of nice to have a client helping me. So that's really pretty much been on my docket here. I've been quite busy. Um, I've got a couple trips on the road planned uh, in the next few weeks, and I will be cutting more timber and consulting. So at least uh, everyone knows where I'm at. I'm happy because we have uh, Jim Ward back. And if you remember, Jim and I talked last time about kind of layout. We talked about walls of cover and kind of how he you know, delivers, you know, his, his ultimate design for his clients. And, and we're going to talk more about kind of a few different topics today. Uh, let me get him on the line. Hey, Jim, are you there? Yes. Uh-huh. Okay, great. Uh, it's nice to have you back. What's been, uh, what's been going on with you? What have you been up to? Well, um, today I've been spraying a pasture in Missouri and I'm going to be putting down Roundup Ready Alfalfa. Got about 120 pounds of seed with me. And so, uh, I'm going to put it down about 12 pounds an acre tomorrow. Um, so, yeah, staying busy. So are you uh, you doing that all by hand? Um, yes, uh, actually off of a four-wheeler, so not by hand. But So uh, 
four-wheeler seems to be my best piece of small equipment that I can use. Just gets around through the timber better, you know, and um, and I got several pieces of equipment that I attach to it. Uh, orchard fogger that I have that I do a lot of spraying with. Um, and then I got a couple of different deals where I can hold my chainsaws and, and my spray containers and whatnot, so. Well, let's talk about that. I think this is a good topic. We're, we're going to get into equipment today, but I want to talk about the basics. And Sunday, I was on a client property. It was a repeat client for me. He bought a bigger parcel, and he had two four-wheelers, and we're we're going down the trail, and he doesn't have a chainsaw. He doesn't have any boxes set up or anything like that. How is your ATV set up? Like, it sounds like a utility vehicle for you. How, how is it set up? Can you go through some of the tools, equipment, how you've got it laid out? Do you have, a, I use a tool called a saw haul, um, anything like that? Um, well, actually, I have a buddy that he developed this this uh, quick change uh, system for me. It's, uh, I wouldn't even know how to explain it. It's got two rails that have been welded to my rack, and then all my equipment has a, a half-inch um, heavy plastic plate that's attached to the bottom of them. And so then that'll slide right in those two rails that are, are welded there on my rack. And so I can change out from my seed spreader to my orchard sprayer to my um, my chainsaw hauling rack or, you know, I got several different things I can put on there. And it takes about a, about a minute to change it out that way. And so either put my seed spreader on the front or the back, um, just real handy deal. So Yeah, it's good. I think, I think an ATV is... I had this Honda Rancher. It was a 2004 Honda Rancher. And I tell you, you could not beat that thing. It was incredibly, yeah. you know, it was, it was probably one of the best utility vehicles I could have ever had. And I like to make sure on any property where I'm working, I'm able to get as close as I can to the areas that I'm working and bringing as much equipment in there as possible. So I'm not back and forth. I'm not inefficient, right? And that's that's one of the things I think you and I had talked about when we, we were talking the other day. And uh, I think that's really, really important. I, and I guess the advent of having UTVs with these boxes in the back, now when we're going to clients, when I show up, we got a basically a enclosed trailer. We've got all our equipment in the enclosed trailer. We got extra, um, you know, habitat hooks or chainsaws. We, you know, we've got four saws with us, you know, because things break. And we basically, and the, the last client we were on, we, we blew a tire out. We didn't have a backup tire, which those things happen, but just pulled it out yeah. of the you know utility, and we had all our stuff in there, and then we go. And, and we try to get as close as we can to the, the landing sites or wherever we're working. And it uh, seems to be most convenient that way. Are you hauling around a trailer or are you throwing in the back of your truck? Um, I'm hauling around a trailer, but I'm using an open trailer now. I had it enclosed back in the day, but this aluminum trailer – um, just a little easier to mess with. And then um, I got a metal topper that I put on the back of my truck. So um, that's where I got my chainsaws and everything in there. But Yeah, Josh sometimes sleeps in the back of the, uh, the enclosed trailer. My partner sleeps in the enclosed trailer. I, I prefer not to sleep in the trailer, but, you know, that's it, it plays its part. You know, it, sa- it saves sometimes on, uh, I guess, expenses for hotels, but... Most of the time, I don't mind spending time with the clients because usually they'll make us dinner, and, and I always appreciate that. Um, yeah, for sure, right? <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah. So let's, uh, let's get into some of the topics that we're talking about. We, we started talking about equipment. I think equipment's a big piece of this and trying to be efficient in the field. I kind of want to kind of drill into some of the things, topics, things that you've been thinking about lately in the field and, and what you're, you know, what you're gleaning from it or what things that you see that can be, can be done better from the standpoint of efficiency type of equipment to use, et cetera. Right. Um, so back in the day, I was pretty much, you know, by hand. And um, as I've got older, you know, getting wore down and whatnot, uh, definitely seen equipment been a real handy thing, even in the bedding areas. Um, so, like, like for instance, I was up in Buffalo County, Wisconsin, a couple of weeks ago, and and we was doing bedding areas for the client, and um, and so. Typically, what I like to do, uh, these bedding areas were on terrain features. There's a lot of high ground and then the short points off of that high ground, and the high ground was crop ground. And so on the edge of the crop ground, we'd done a um, feathered edge there. And then we had two entrances that came around behind that feathered edge so that we could have our 20-yard back buck sneak trail um, is what I have called it in the past. But there's always a trail parallel on an open field 20 yards back and so what i was able to do i done the feathered edge and then had the skid steer come in and improve that trail um and one thing that i typically do is cut those trees off at ground level there and then uh you know you could just slide them across the ground instead of trying to remove stumps or anything and then, <clears throat> then my next thing that I do in those short point bedding situations is drop the next uh, trees in another wall there. And then if there's enough space in the point, then we take the piece of equipment and come around and make another trail behind that. And so in the future, what we can do is come in there on my four-wheeler and I use a backpack fogger sprayer. And um, I'll put a half gallon of Roundup in that, and um, I can drive that trail then and knock out invasives or just any type of plant that the deer do not like to eat much. And uh, what I mean is ferns, um, oh, ironwood, um, just all that sage, the stuff that they do not like because in the bedding area, what they typically do, they're in there browsing a couple times a day, and so they selectively take out the good stuff. So about year three, I can run through there real quick and knock that stuff back or any invasives that I don't want around, you know. So anytime you get sun anymore, you're going to get some invasives, and it's real nice to have a four-wheeler wide trail to be able to get in there and attack them. So I'm just thinking about this layout and, um, you know, it's, it's sections and layers. And we, we spoke about that, you know, before Exactly. you mentioned two things, you mentioned cutting trees down and getting yourself into an area. So are you constructing the trails first so you can get into an area, then building your walls of cover or, you know, your segregated areas. And then you also talked about, you know, removing or cutting stumps rather low so you can get equipment in there. Is that kind of how you're, processing this what's your well like- it, it really just depends on if, I, some, if i'm working by myself or somebody else is with me you know if somebody else is with me my first thing i like to do is to go ahead and and paint out those trail systems right so then we can get separated and they understand 100 percent what we're up to right but if i'm working by myself 
and I just have a piece of equipment or somebody's going to come in with you a piece of equipment, I actually put my walls down first because my method is I'm typically trying to get, you know, a lot of the canopy removed and I'm trying to do it with the junk trees. And um, so some of them will be leaning to where they're going to go across this trail system that I want in there, right? But I still need the canopy opened up. And so the nice thing, so, so I'll put my walls down first and then I'll chunk up those pieces that are across my trail, you know, and like eight foot pieces or whatever. So a piece of equipment can move that out of the way for me. And then also, as you mentioned there, I'm going to go ahead and, and the trees that are in the way. Now I'm going to, I typically want just like a, a crooked trail through there. You know, I'm not trying to make a big, a big, uh, wide 12 foot wide logging road or something. And so I'm going to go around the nicer trees or stuff I want to keep, but just to get the piece of equipment through, I'm going to cut the stumps off right at dirt level. Right. And so they do not have to get down in the dirt at all. And they can just skid this wood right across the top of the ground without destroying anything. And um, it's easier on the equipment. And then when the stuff gets thicker, um, you know, I don't want to run into a 6 or 10-inch stump in there with my four-wheeler when I'm trying to spray. And so that's the reason I'm cutting those off at ground level. I agree. We do the same, very similar, very similar principle just to get stuff out of the way so you're not, you know, belling out your ATV or UTV, whatever you're using or, or whatever piece of equipment you're trying to get back in there. I think the other thing I'm, I'm wondering is if you're, you're cutting these stumps super low, you know, I, we've talked before, I know you run pretty small chainsaws. Are you, are you running to cut larger stumps or do you have a bigger saw with you and you're running a smaller saw? How, how do you kind of work that out? No, I'm, I'm running the same saws. Um, I've cut a whole lot of stumps off in my life, right? <laughs> yeah. um, it, it's the cheapest way to do it. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, you, but, again, typically, we're not talking, you know, the, the logger stumps to where it's going to be a 30-inch stump, you know? I mean, what I'm talking about is usually taking down trees for the piece of equipment to get through there that's going to be, it might be a 15-inch stump, you know? And, and I'm using a 14-inch bar, and so I'll go on the downhill side of that stump, and usually I might even take my hatchet and, and bust the bark off of it and actually kind of cup out some of the dirt because my small saw can set down. I'll, I'll bore the, the bar in there, and then my saw will be set down in that hole, and I just take it back and forth, and um, then I'll go around the other side of the stump and cut down at an angle to meet that line that I've already put in there. And, and most stumps that are 15 inches, I can have them cut off in about three minutes, right? Um, it's an easy process. Uh, and if you have a bigger stump and you have more equipment like a sledgehammer and a wedge, as soon as you undermine that piece of wood, depending on how tall the stump is, say it's a 12-inch stump, you undermine it, well, now you can split those pieces off of there, you know, because it's just going to bust down to, to your cut. And, again, if you got a wedge, you can knock those off real fast and then get your saw back in there and cut at a little down angle and, uh, yeah, take it out fast. In my food plots, you know, I cut all my trees off at four foot up, and, um, and then 
it's best to have an excavator picks them up out of there and moves them to the wall that I have around the outside. But now that stump's going to sprout all the way up. And, and I know you're aware those stump sprouts are the most nutritious thing that they can get. And uh, so I think it was uh, Mississippi State said that they're 10 times more nutritious than any other thing that they can eat, period. And so I want that in my food plot. And I want those sprouts there. But what they'll do is eat them all and kill them stumps. And so in the future, now what I do, I can see the stumps. If my vegetation gets up high, so I go around there and spray and all that. But when it's dead, now I cut it off below ground level and leave the whole root system in the food plot. And it's my opinion that stump under the ground is holding a lot of moisture in there. And then it's also what it's doing is feeding the fungus and the bacteria in the soil. And um, so, I mean, and it's not hurting your equipment because it's right below ground level. Yeah, yeah. And so, yeah. Those timber soils where I'm doing most of my work, they're so shallow when you take out five or six stumps and then you take the topsoil and shove it into those those stump holes, those spots that you you know, you gotta fill in, man, you could destroy the, the health of the of the food plot quick that way, you know. And so but so yeah, I kinda went from, from bedding area to food plot there, but you know, the whole idea is 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 the stump removal and, and you can do it obviously with a dozer and, and a and a backhoe, but I would rather use my doll chains and uh in a bar that's you know, not my brand new bars and and, and cut them off a little at times. So Yeah, that's interesting you say that because, you know the topic of of maintenance and, and chainsaws and the criticality of having super super sharp saws to make sure you're kind of fluent flying through cutting timber. There's times where I'm cutting really fast and there's times where I'm, I'm kind of slowing down. And, and a lot of times it's, you know, there's an overwhelming, you know, you're there, you're on a job for a couple of days, right? And you want to feel like you can get the maximum amount. They're paying you a fair amount of money and you want to work as hard as you can, as fast as you can. Um, and you brought up a point earlier, painting out areas and, we don't do that. Um, typically, you know, I'll have a, I'll have the layout on paper and I'm going to apply it. It gets bigger, smaller, but I'm looking at the resident trees and making some decisions. And, uh, we, we had talked about this personally the other day of just kind of thinking about your walls, your layout and kind of mapping it out. And if you're working with like really small areas and you're doing these kind of precision cuts, you're looking at a tree's lean, you're looking at the, the health of the tree. You know, even when I'm looking at the trees, I'm looking at the deformities or, or bark layers to see how well a, a tree would hinge. I'm thinking about the moisture levels, the time of year. I mean, there's a lot of things that go into actually that cutting that individual tree. And then sometimes you're just trying to get, you know, tempered down. And, uh, you know, the expediency of that, having, you know, good equipment and in this case, sharp chains is really critical. And then we're just talking about, you know, busting them up when, when we're, uh, we're kind of stumping or, you know, cutting into the, the ground layer at least some, at some point. Because, of course, you know, you're going to get dirt on that and that's going to that's gonna kind of dull out your saw. I guess the other piece of this is just having that other person or having equipment. And I guess you brought up the point earlier, and we've used mulchers and, and uh, skid steers and, and all sorts of equipment. You know, and the biggest thing is for me is using that equipment to your advantage. So, you know, we were talking the other day about skid steers and their advantage in the woodlot, but also their disadvantage. They they help you move around kind of the, the, the trees that you're bucking, trees that are, you know, on the ground that you want to move in other areas so you're not breaking your back. And this could be a tractor as well with a loader on it. But you're using those to your advantage. Um, 
you know, how do you use equipment like that when you're doing your cutting? And what's the benefit of that? Whether it's a mulcher, skid steer, loader, you know, loader on a tractor, what's your opinion? Right. So I done a field day in Indiana this last weekend with Mossy Oak Properties. And we done one of my hubs I would typically do. Um, and what that consists of is a small food plot and hopefully five trails coming into that. And so I went out a couple of weeks before that with Jeff Maholic and we had painted out the travel corridors that I wanted right over top of the deer trails. And then the mulcher came in before I got there and, and done the food plot and the travel corridors. Right. And it was through multiflora rose and, um, and blackberry. And you, we couldn't hardly walk, you know, when we were in there painting it out and, um, it didn't take him very long at all because he knew exactly what we wanted because it was all marked out. And that's one of the big benefits too. When you take, bring equipment in, if you can go around for a couple of days and get all ready for it, then there's not near as much downtime when the equipment is there. And, and so, but back to, um, a mulcher is awesome for that. But one of the problems with the mulcher is you get all that organic matter ground up on your trail. Right. And, and so I like to put seed down on those trails. And, and the problem with that is, is that organic matter is going to consume all the nitrogen in the soil, right? And so you got to pound it with a whole lot of fertilizer to get any success at all off of it. So, but again, the first year, it's the fastest method and best method that you can come up with, right? And so um, there is other piece of attachments that you can put on that. One of them is a Harley rake. And that Harley rake, I've seen a couple of different versions of it. One's got like a one-inch nub on it, and then one's got like a five-inch, half-inch thick plate that sticks out. And that Harley rake will move rocks, but it also basically tills the soil. But you can move all the debris off that trail with that also. So the beauty of those skid steers, whether you have a grinder head on it or all the other attachments, is that. But... You know, in the in the time that I've done this, now I'm not an operator. I mean, I run some equipment, but I've seen guys that are unbelievable at it. And but I would tell you, about eighty percent of the time that I see somebody bring a skid steer in the timber, they'll have the track off of it by the end of the second day for sure. Um, I, I rarely see any. I mean, I'm saying eighty percent of the time within <laughs> the time two days I'm there, the yep. tracks off of it, or probably 20% of the time they bust out the front window, right? And But it's just a rough environment, and they're in there turning, and there's rocks, and, you know, and, and it's just so much to look at, uh, to pay attention to, you know, it, the equipment's getting beat up in there. And, um, you know, I bought a little dozer a few years ago, and I go into bedding areas and make my little flat benches in there, you know, and, and push the the timbered tops around and then every year what you have is trees that fall down on your trail, you know, that need to be moved. And, um, but yeah, I tore that dozer up unbelievable, right? Just not having the knowledge. I had to track off of it the second day I had it in the timber and that track was hard to get back on, you know? Oh. Um, <laughs> yeah. But you know, and then I, I tore the whole blade off the front of it and, uh, a guy said, well, man, you're a little rough. Well, I seen one of the best operators that I I've seen ever on a dozer rip the front blade off in the timber, you know, um, running into those short stumps, not seeing them, you know, it's rough. A dozer is to push dirt, you know? And, uh, so, 
you know, you, you need to use the piece of equipment for what it's meant to do. You know, the excavator, as far as I'm concerned, a small excavator with a thumb on it, I mean, I haven't seen anything better for food plots, period. You don't tear up your soil. It's got a blade on the front. You can make your walls, um, you know, make your travel corridors with the excavator. But, you know, if you're talking roads in there, I'd go back, you know, back to using a dozer or a skid steer. But, yeah, every piece of equipment's got its spot. Um, I think that the next piece of equipment I'm personally going to buy is going to be a small excavator with a thumb. And, uh, you know, as far as drainages and erosion problems and water hose by your tree stands, and there's just so many benefits to a small excavator. Um, so... I, I agree. I agree. I think so. You know, the dozer, we've done food plots with dozers. We've had Brendan bigger dozers. Um, we had a client recently that had a, a ginormous dozer and it really depends on the material you're working with. And yeah. you know, we had a mulcher come in. I had a mulcher on a client's property for 10 days and that tells you how big the property is. And, uh, yep. you know, we cut trails and we had everything marked out and laid out and we ribboned everything and we ribboned it really high and we, you know, so the operator, we actually had a drawn up plan. He went through, he cut all our trails, he put all our food plots in. But again, the status of that was a lot of, you know, short, brushy vegetation. And, you know, in a hardwood setting, you know, typically around here, we've got a lot of hard maple. That's not the best selection. Yeah. You know, you're better off using an excavator with a thumb. And recently we just did driveways and food plot areas with one of those. And I was super impressed at the expediency instead of having the dozer, you know, we could our placement. It's no different from having a feller buncher versus, you know, an individual out there cutting with, you know, traditional equipment, having a feller buncher lay out all the treetops in a certain way. And there's yeah. an efficiency with that, but there's also the negative. If you got a 60,000 pound machine out there, 70,000 pound machine out there, and you got a lot of compaction issues and they can't get into every nook and cranny and cut every tree because the machine has to physically get in those locations. So there's a lot of trail maintenance. So there's, individual work that happens initially, then the machine either can get in there or not. And then they traditionally fell in those, you know, steep hillsides. It, it all depends on the application, but I'm with you on equipment. I think an excavator with a thumb and you brought up another point with the dozer, you know, dozers for move, moving dirt, right? That's, you know, and, and a smaller dozer can sometimes be a little bit more agile. And there's, there's a lot you can do with those little dozers, but you're talking about getting in areas and creating mounds or benches, et cetera. You, you used your dozer for probably trail maintenance. I mean, that's what I see most people using them for. But actually going and creating bedding areas with it, can you just kind of explain a little bit about that? Yes. Uh, so the first place I seen it was years ago up in Buffalo County, and it was just a regular logging road um, that it was a bench. It, it, I mean, that's what it was basically. And the deer were just bedded on it like crazy. And I thought, man, I've been running around with a shovel making these flat spots. <laughs> and uh, – and man, look at all these beds on this on this here man-made bench, right? And so, I towed a couple of people over the years, and so I've had I don't know half dozen guys um, bring their equipment out there and um, and do just that. And so I bought a D2 Komatsu um, dozer, and it's a small one, little dresser dozer, and uh, I mean it's just perfect for that, right? And um, you know, I'm just talking about what I like to do with them. It's just a small area, right? I'm saying, I'm saying a 
just big enough for basically the dozer to set there, right? But it's just a flat, nice little bench right next to the drop-off where they're going to get that swirling wind. They get to overlook everything. Now, I don't really want them to, so I'm going to try to hinge cut some trees out in front of them a little bit to reduce their sight vision some um, so they can get closer to that bedding area depending on the direction I'm coming at it. But, but yes, um, so if I can uh, explain this well enough on the phone, so I'll do my feathered edge or my outside edge, first outside edge, to cut the point off from the ridge if I can. Mm -hmm. And then, so then I'm going to have that trail right behind that wall, which I always put a trail behind a wall. And, and that trail, depending on the situation, I don't usually see the deer bed close to, you know, that first behind that first wall cover. That'll usually be my travel trail there. And then we'll lay down another wall. And behind that is where I'm going to make my bench or construct my flat spots next to the drop to the ravines on each side of that point. And then if I can, again, I'm going to go out there and make a couple more. What I want on a point in a bedding area is I want three sets of beds in there that's got three to four beds. And so I'm wanting about a dozen beds in a bedding area. And, um, I mean, depending on the size of it, Obviously, I see usually one family group or one bachelor group using that. Um, I feel like they want to be about 75 yards apart. And so if you can get something made that's an acre and a half or two acres, you know, I would want to have more beds in it than a dozen. But, yeah, I want to have three to four beds in about a 10-yard circle. And, and that piece, that size of it, that D2 can, can do that. Or a skid steer. And, and even the excavator is good in that situation, right? Yeah. Um, Excavator, I mean, it's just such a versatile thing, and you have something in front of you, uh, you're always working where you can see it, you know. Um, so often with that dozer, I'm going through briars and, uh, you know, model floor rows. Well, man, it's easy to run into something. Yeah, it is. Uh, you know, it's funny. You're right. You got to be careful. Like, and it's interesting your layout on these knobs and points and visual screening and having. It was just funny. I was. I'm just thinking about some of the, th the things that I have rules and requirements when we're doing, you know, my mind works very simple, right? I look at the vegetation, I look at how I can manipulate it. Then I think about, you know, what rule sets I can apply. And, and, you know, I have like certain criteria based on, we'll, we'll say a knob and you're talking about how many beds you can fit in there. We're trying to maximize the amount of bedding, but also in some cases food. And you brought up the point earlier, these deer get up, they mill around, Right, they're kind of loafing in these areas. You want to give them food availability, uh, concert of food cover, visual advantage, yet you want to segregate them. There's a lot to think about when you're kind of doing these layouts and compartmentalizing different areas. I think people have heard Jake and I talk about this on the podcast. But to your point, getting there and being strategic, one of the problems we run into nine times out of 10 is mismanaged timber. And you've got like really large timber and not a lot of smaller timber to work with. Kind of that, you know, codominant tree or trees, you know, where, where they have you know, multi-age species. So they don't have a lot of that. So it's, it's basically kind of like a, a monocrop of trees. And, and usually, you know, they're, they're a poor form. And you're trying to just get debris down and just trying to create structure and make it a little more uneven age. And one of the things that I've always struggled with is, you know, picking those right locations. Somebody reached out to me today and said, hey, every time I clear out a, a, a bedding location, the deer won't bed there. And, and I said to him, 
you know, it's probably the location that you're selecting is not good enough, you know, based upon, you know, kind of what, what I would assume are the preferential areas where they'd bed. So when you're starting to look at your layout and stuff like that, forensically, you're going to pick key spots where the deer are going to bed. Like back in the day, you know, there may be a wind throw area and in that wind throw the tree tipped over and it created a mound. And that mound would be an ideal location for bedding, assuming it has the right structure in concert with that mound. And it's picking a lot of those out in the landscape. But I say to most clients, you know, on an acre, I want at least 70 beds. And they're like, well, that's a lot. And I said, actually, that's the minimum. And, and I throw that number out as just kind of an artificial number. But it gets them thinking about, you know, how many locations am I going to start to in place within these bedrooms areas? And how do I create these bedrooms? And a lot of times when we're architecting it, we, we use like a, a similarity to a home build and, you know, the size of a kitchen, you know, what amenities do we want in there? And we think about food, water cover. And then we think about, you know, how to create the right volume of debris. So they're not too controlled or they feel like they can't escape an area. And so it's like thinking about all those in concerts, I guess, uh, Jim, it sounds probably pretty crazy, but I have kind of rule sets with that each time I go in and I think about the distance between debris and picking those bedding locations out first, even before we get equipment in there, because I don't want some of the big equipment to destroy kind of those key locations because you can flatten out in a destroying area. And if you fell a tree wrong, then you got to remove it because that was a key location where you could get a deer to kind of lay out, you know? What you're saying, what you're saying, a hundred percent, right? And so when I first started building bedding areas, and I don't even know for how many years ago that was now, probably 17, 18 years ago, I didn't know about those key locations, right? Yeah. So I was going in, making a hut, making a flat spot, putting a log behind it, making sure they can get straight in and out um, each side on the same elevation or terrain feature, straight in, lay down, and then straight out if they want. And so I went along for a while going back to properties and looking at that, right? Well, then, just like what you're saying, uh, there's key locations in there. And so real quick, uh, I mean, it took me, you know, like just a couple of years of realizing, my goodness, here it is, right? And so I can't remember if, if it was a podcast that we done or another one, but there was a map guy that got a hold of me. His name was Russ Guthrie, and um, what he done – He's got a way of, of making a 2 to 4% slope one color and then like a 4 to 20% slope a different shade. Mm. And, and so these here drops. So what it is, what I see, especially in, in any um, terrain features, hilly, it, the, the ideal location is where it comes out flat and drops super fast. Yeah. And uh, they're there. I mean, I'm saying if you have the, the – population there they're going to be there and and so anyway since russ sent me a map of my property he'd never been on it and uh he was 75 percent right on my beds on my property never been on it just listened to me talk and then threw that map out there right and and i was blown away by it and so i got a hold and we talked for and i met him down florida actually but um back to it's really that simple. It's those terrain features. Now, don't get me wrong. They're going to bed in other spots, too, depending on your deer numbers. And just like you said, you know, if there's a log laying there in the way or a bunch of brush laying there or a rose bush in the premium spot, they can't do that. Um, years ago, Tony LaPratt, he was 
building beds and and i'd follow up behind them and chris was the guy that was doing it and just an unbelievable um good guy uh chris is but they were putting in um ground clear to keep the bed open from from vegetation growing right and i was like man that's silly well i'll tell you what um the guys that kept doing it on their properties that worked really well and uh i mean it's one of the things that i definitely recommend but um in those key locations, um, it, it's even a better situation, right? But a visual open spot with no vegetation in it is definitely an attraction as long as you got cover around that also. And typically your beds are going uh, – your does are going to use those beds that aren't associated with the terrain feature. The reason that the terrain feature is so critical is the same spot that we – dug our fighting hose when i was in the marine corps infantry it's the safest location and that's what the buck is after and um so yeah if if i go into the bedding area i'm looking at those locations from a distance whether i'm painting it out or not but if i got somebody else with me i've even started painting the ground exactly a five foot line on the ground and saying downhill from that line is where the bed is and laying those beds out that way. So again, yeah. you know, you know, and, and you got to smell there and all that, but I'm telling you what, it's not, they're going to be there, right? It's not long that it's messing with the deer and, uh, but it keeps those spots open and it helps us move faster. And, uh, it's that effective really. So, and I think the point you're making here is just observing and you bring up a point where I'm looking at the landscape. I'm looking at the slope. I'm looking at the type of soil, the species, like the whole nine. You're, and, and I can tell you, this is the greatest thing in the world. I'm having this conversation with a client. And uh, I said, there's going to be beds. You know, we were a ways away. There's going to be beds up here on this particular area. And they're going to be isolated beds. You're going to see a lot of fecal matter. You're going to see a lot of fecal matter in the beds, like within the bed. And, um, you know, I'm kind of pointing this all out to him. And I just he sends up there. He goes, John, I found it. I found it. And all it is is observation. It's not me being, you know, a, a you know, a, a psychic. I'm I'm able to observe right. what deer are doing, and we're replicating it. And maybe we're adding a bit to it. You know, we I talked to you recently, Jim, about a client property that I was working on where there was a ton of Winthrow trees. They had a microburst, and it was by far. I mean, not even a question. I've been on. I can't tell you how many properties, but by far, it was the densest, most well-managed vegetation that I had seen. And basically when a windthrow tree gets knocked over, the root system stays intact. One of the goals we have in kind of maintaining some of this vegetation is the trees live. Well, yeah. ultimately that root system survives most times during the year because it, it's still con contacted. The, the stem is still obviously whole. And then you get a lot of shoots as this tree kind of lays over. A microburst came in through there. And a lot of times, depending on where that microburst came in, it could be on contour. So those trees fell on contour, which... This just happened to be this way. And, you know, and some not totally on contour. You just cut out some of the tops. But, you know, you'd get stem shoots off them, and it would just be unbelievable. ton of choke cherry. Choke cherry is by far, I don't care what anybody says, in our area, like the Northeast, choke cherry is my, my absolute 100% favorite plant, period. Great cover, great food. It's a great resource for deer. Um, it'll outcompete. You know, everyone focus on redders or dogwood. I'll take a choke cherry yeah. thicket any day of the week. And, uh, no kidding. Yeah, n not even close. And, uh, and I've been on, you know, hundreds of properties at this point, absolutely not even a question. And, and I, and I saw that replication in that area and I just told the client, I said, 
this is the 10 best acres of bedding I've ever seen in my entire life. You know, he spent a lot for the property, but you know, now we got to go in there and manage it. And it's going in there and creating kind of the right space and kind of things we were talking about earlier. And I just was super impressed. And I'm like, boy, can I, can I replicate this? Can I replicate this with an excavator? You know, can I, can I knock over trees in a certain way? And, and you can, and we can do it in small increments if we have the equipment in, but it's, it's way too labor intensive to make, you know, an entire area, an eight, 10 acre area, wind throw like that. And it's just, it's right. too, too, way too hard to do, but you can do it in, in some capacity that that could give you guys some ideas who are thinking about, you know, the next generation of strategy. That's one of my strategies that I'm, I'm thinking about now and great elevation block. You can change your elevation as you tip that tree over, depending, you know, again, what, what trees are adjacent to it, but you, you've got to think about what you leave residual and, and how you create that visual blockage or how do you keep these trees alive or whatever you're trying to do. Um, and most times when I'm hinge cutting trees, you know, there's a strategy with each line that I'm cutting. Do we want it to live? Do we want it to die? What's the structure? What's the elevation? You know, what's the benefit? It's not always, you know, for bedding purposes. So, you know, right. I just, I'm thinking about each one of these cuts and your whole painting things out. You know, I talked to Josh about that the other day and I was just like, we got to slow down and paint these areas out. Cause we're, we're dealing with a lot of clients that are like 60 to 80 acres and in their bedding areas, 20 to 30% of the areas are going to be bedding. But when we show them what to do, we want to take our time with them. And I think that would help, you know, the layout, you know, kind of construct a little bit better, at least in my mind. Well, when I'm trying to take multiple trees down at one time, um, to where I'm, I'm keeping them more attached and I'm making, I'm making them tangled together to where they're making my wall, yeah. um, narrower and more dense. Um, that's one of the big benefits of doing the painting, you know, because I could sit there and study and even paint an arrow on it um, to where, you know how it is, you get working a long day, you get tired, and you can just forget, you know. You look at the tree from the wrong angle or whatever and um, take it the wrong direction when you're in there and, and cause yourself a 20-minute a cleanup job, you know, uh, to make yourself real tired at the end of the day. But, uh, yeah, no, that painting, it, it has... It's made a big difference, especially like I mentioned earlier, when I have other guys working with me. And um, you know, it's dangerous when you have three or four guys working in an in a in an area, and um, and your trees are thirty to forty foot tall. So yeah, no, it is. It's good to stay together, and it is tough when you have three guys versus two guys, or four guys versus two guys, and the two guys are working together. I, I like the concept of working with a partner and then talking through the issue and trying to resolve like what's the best way to approach this when we're doing mm. kind of our layout, you know, and I just, you know, I, I kind of work off sticks in the woods. I'll clear out the, the area. We'll, we'll lay it down. We'll say, okay, this is what we're working for trees. You know, these are economic crop trees. You know, these are non-valued trees these are future value okay this is where the deer are preferably going to bed what are we going to do here what are we going to do there and that we take the map design and kind of apply it in real life and sometimes you can take the map and say okay it's relevant to a certain point but when you get really specific you know you're picking out these key areas that we were just kind of discussing and you got to place trees in the right way otherwise you're creating more work for yourself and the last yeah. thing i want to do is get equipment in there and have to move trees treetops around i want to be able to do it with hand by hand and uh, that's why this is so labor intensive, you know, and, and we're trying to get away from using the hook as much and, and knocking trees into trees to make it a little bit easier on us because, you know, I, I get tired wedging trees. I mean, there's, 
you know, there's, there's only, you know, if you take a, a three and a half pound ax and you're smashing a 12 inch wedge, you know, hundreds of times during the day and, uh, you know, it reverberates and your hands are hurting you by the end of the day. And well, uh, yeah. <laughs> shoulder and elbows hurting by the end of the day. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. You're exactly right. And, and it's like you mentioned, I mean, it takes more time, right. To pound all those wedges, you know, you got to set your saw down and, uh, go through the whole process. So no, um, knocking trees over with other trees. I mean, it's taken me a long time to get there, but the best way to do it is by painting them out. Yeah. So, yeah, I love that strategy. All right, we're way past our time. I think we went about 13 minutes over. So I wanted to, you know, anything else you want to talk about? Anything else that's on your mind? Um, well, I mean, the last thing, talking about equipment, if a person's going to end up getting equipment, don't forget to have a shed or something to put it in because leaving a nice piece of equipment sitting out in the weather, and I'm doing it right now, um, causes a person a lot of issues with rodents, chewing on wires, the whole nine yards, right? And, um I had a, a bird nest in my breather um, on the dozer. You know, there's just so many little things that happen if you got it out out in the woods or out in the weather. So, yeah, that's a good good bit of advice. If you can keep it indoors, it's going to last longer. And by the way, do your maintenance yeah, at the right. at the time you put your equipment away. Not come springtime. I think a lot of people, you know, now you almost have to because you don't know when you're going to get a you know parts in. But you know, do your maintenance as you put your equipment away. I'm. I'll, I'll laugh at myself today. I, I'm going out with a backpack sprayer after we get off this call, and I'm spraying spraying a hillside. And um, I went up to the hardware store, and uh, I don't have a, a gasket on the top of my my uh, my my top. And so I'm just going to cut out a gasket and throw it in there because I don't I don't want the uh, herbicide running on my back. And I'm thinking to myself, well, I could have done that, you know, six months ago when I put that backpack you know, sprayer away. And it's just, it's little things like that that you got to be on top of maybe a small example, but you know, I think maintenance is huge. And uh, a lot of times, you know, it's important. I maintain this chainsaws and some of these chainsaws are throwaways at this point. I'll tell you one thing, Jim, I did work with steel last year and they sent us a bunch of prototypes and we were, we were, uh, we were bashing them. Our job was to break them and we did. And uh, we didn't drop trees on them, but you know, almost, but we, we ran them to, we ran them to the, you know, to their desks and they were like, ah, I think they were like one eighties, you know, steel one eighties, some, uh-huh. somewhere in that realm. And uh, it, it was amazing the the ability, you know, cause I've been running those 201 T handle saws and I, I, for some reason, love a T handle saw. I've gotten so used to that, but those little 170, 180s, I think a lot of people want to spend a lot of money on saws. You know, you can use these saws and eventually they're throwaways. They're super light. I want the lightest equipment that I can have. And that includes, you know, axes. And um, sometimes I'll bring like a splitter wedge with me to, to you know, if I really want to get that tree knocked over uh, with, a, with a small, you know, sludge hammer. But a lot of times I'm running two and a half pound long hickory axe and I got two 12 inch uh, Madsen wedges with me. And that's pretty much what I've been running for the past six months. Uh, Josh and I, we, we fight on wedge sizes and equipment but that's pretty much what we've been running and i'm trying to stay as light as possible you know just uh, i think a holster for the for the axe i can throw up my back and i got my light chainsaw and we're we've been running those 201s but you know there's a lot of options for people out there i would say stay light lights i think critical in this in this uh, unless you got to buck up big stuff and you got a lot of stuff on the ground that that's my recommendation for for folks i think you think similar to that oh no exactly um, okay. 
you know, I, anymore, I carry a gas bottle with me so I don't have to run back to my gas can too much. And, I, and as you mentioned, I'm using the, the 170, um, steel 170. I put a 14-inch bar on it, actually, instead of running that 16-inch bar that it comes with. Okay. But I'm using an East Wing all-metal hatchet okay. because when I'm pounding those wedges, my handles keep getting busted out of out of my hatchets, you know. And so then I went with the with the all steel one, but no, I mean, you know what it is, you can carry an extra couple of pounds by the end of an eight or 10 hour day, um, up and down those hills, especially out there where you're at. Uh, it's too much. That five and a half pound chainsaw and just a small gas bottle. I can go out for an hour and a half. And, um, and the clients laugh, Jim, but like, and I'm not opposed to walking, but I'm, I don't want to walk. I want to get as close as I can to the location, you know, without worrying about smashing the equipment. And yeah. it, it just allows me to be way more effective. So when you're doing your design and layout, and I think Jim was getting to this point earlier, like make sure you can get in these areas and make sure that you can work as close as possible. And think about maintenance. He brought up that earlier. How are you going to maintain this area over time? And how are you going to get in there with equipment? I think most people don't recognize that. And in the South with your, you know, your, the amount of vegetation that you're dealing with, and I know that there's drought periods, but the volume uh, of vegetation that you're dealing with, your, your length of your season is so great that if you don't have access into those areas, they, they become kind of over overcome by vegetation. In the north, you have the same issue. You may not have necessarily the growing season like that, but after a few years, you're, you're dealing with a lot of woody material and how are you going to set it back or using a brush saw, you know, chainsaw and, and, and ends up almost being like a weed whacker for most people. And it's, it's just a lot of work. I think people don't recognize, you know, the volume of work you're getting into and you've got to have good access into those areas. So, you know, yeah, there's nothing in the, in the outdoors. That's a one and done, you know I mean? You're going to have to do a maintenance, whether you're doing a food plot, a bedding area, water hose, whatever you're doing, licking branches. And so the access, just like you're saying, um, it's just and the four wheeler with the with a winch on the front of it has been my best method for that. So that's good. That's a good point. All right. We're way over time, but it was good catching up with you. Happy to have you back on the show. We'll talk to you again soon and hopefully we see each other soon. So uh, yeah. we'll talk Look later. Forward. All right. Hey, thank you. Thanks, Jim. Bye. See ya. Maximize your hunt is a production of Whitetail Landscapes. For more information on how John Teeter and his team of experts can help you maximize your hunt, check out whitetaillandscapes.com.